0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John will be discussing Acts chapter 19, where Paul is in Ephesus, the episode with the sons of Sceva, And the riot at Ephesus. Please do check out those links in our show notes. There you'll find a link to our YouTube channel where we are in the midst of an ongoing series walking through the book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart. We also want to invite you to our upcoming regional course in Dallas, Texas on November 6th and 7th. There, Peter Lightheart will be teaching a course on what we should be hoping for. For more information about that regional course, you can find a link in the show notes. With that, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John, discussing Acts 19. Welcome
1: to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is keeping our recording going and making sure that everything is smoothly edited and prepared for distribution. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. We're in the middle of a study, series of studies in the book of Acts, uh, which have been carrying on for several months now. Uh, we've gotten to Acts 19, which will be the chapter that we're covering today, uh, and this is coming to the close of Paul's uh, missionary work among the Gentiles. In the last couple of chapters, 19 and 20, Paul is beginning a kind of farewell tour as he um, goes to the churches that he established, and uh, he visits them and speaks to those who are, that he's ministered among and gives them a farewell. Before we get to that, that's in the following chapter in chapter 20. In chapter 19, we have kind of a climactic episode in Paul's uh, missionary work among the Gentiles with a description of Paul's work in Ephesus uh, and the uh, great success he has there and the riot that is provoked by his preaching there. And just to give us some orientation, let me... uh, highlight a couple of things that are uh, uh, that uh, tie this passage uh, Acts chapter nineteen back to the earlier passages in in Acts. It seems to me we're going through a sequence in Acts nineteen that is similar to the sequence of the early chapters of Acts. We have a kind of Pentecost episode at the beginning of the chapter where the spirit comes on these Ephesians who know only john 's baptism they receive the baptism of Jesus and also they they receive the spirit of Jesus so there's a kind of Pentecostal event uh, and then Paul uh, Paul's ministry uh, among the Ephesians resembles the ministry of the early apostles in the in the city of Jerusalem he preaches in the synagogue and is uh, the Jewish leaders resist him and so he he departs from that he performs miracles in the early chapters of Acts we have Peter's shadow performing miracles and healing people in this case it's Relics and artifacts coming from Paul uh, that are taken to sick people and they heal the sick. He's casting out demons, uh, as we find in the early chapters of Acts. There's there is uh, opposition from uh, pretenders, magicians, and and sorcerers, and so on, with the seven sons of Sceva. Uh, and all through this, the the word of the Lord is growing mightily and is spreading. And Jesus is overcoming his. Opposition, particularly the opposition of these demons and these these pretend exorcists. So it seems like as as Paul's ministry winds down, his ministry among the Gentiles, we have this return to the beginning, and his ministry is uh, being it's repeating the ministry of the of the apostles in in the city of
2: Jerusalem. Do any of you know why, or have any theory why Ephesus in Asia Minor here, as we would say, is so important? Takes, out a, takes up a lot of space, and as Peter mentioned, there's a recapitulation of the things that happened in um, the uh, early chapters of Acts, but there seems to be a lot of emphasis on Ephesus. Isn't this also uh, where all seven of the churches are located in this general vicinity, uh, seven churches in Revelation, two and three? Right. Uh, why? Why Ephesus? Is it just because it's a major cultural center um, like Rome and Alexandria, or is there something else? Well, I think that that's certainly part of it, the the cultural center. And
1: it's, I mean, uh, Ephesus, as I understand, is a center of uh, magical beliefs and practices. That Mm -hmm. seems to be the case indicated here in Acts 19. But I think also you have a kind of uh, theological geography going on between Jerusalem. I mean, Paul's going to be moving from Jerusalem to Rome in the latter part of Acts. And Asia Minor is kind of a mediating uh, area between that. It's kind of a meeting ground of Jews and Gentiles, and I think that's that's kind of the function that it plays in in Revelation. It's a it's a uh, I mean, there's synagogues everywhere that Paul goes in Asia Minor, but it's also Gentile territory, and so it's kind of a mixing of the two worlds and a transition from one one world to the other.
3: It also seems to be a particularly successful mission that takes place in Ephesus. There's a great response to the message of Paul, and from my reading of it, some development in the way that they relate to the Jewish synagogue. Um, because here they're taking, they're not just taking their ministry outside of the synagogue; they're taking disciples with them, and it seems that this is one of the reasons why the ministry in Ephesus is part of the provoking factor for all that takes place in Jerusalem afterwards, that Paul is not just moving his ministry on to the Gentiles, he's actually taking Jewish and Greek disciples away from the synagogue. And that is a far greater threat than just his ministry as such.
4: Yeah, later on in the chapter, it is described as if it's a very central place. It talks about, you know, who who doesn't know that um, Ephesus is the great temple keeper of Artemis and and so on. And uh, when Demetrius talks about it, the silversmith, they talk about what happens there, rippling out. And I wonder if it is this this kind of strategic location. And um, it does seem to have spiritual significance, doesn't it? It's in the letter to the Ephesians that Paul talks and centers on how there is a a war, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities and things of that sort.
1: Yeah, I think Alistair's point about the uh, success of the ministry here is important. Uh, verse 10, this took place for two years, Paul's ministry there, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So, uh, it, it again, it's it's a climactic episode in, in Paul's missionary uh, work, and it's uh, described as being a particularly successful one, and that's part of what makes it important, also what provokes the, uh, the response, as Alistair said. So we talked a little bit about the... Um, the connections between Apollos and these Ephesian disciples who know only the baptism of John, who haven't yet received the Spirit. We, we, meant, we talked about that in, in the last episode. And um, trying to figure out exactly what it would mean for somebody to live under the baptism of John without knowing uh, about the gift of the Spirit. They seem to know about Jesus because they are, you know, John was pointing to Jesus, but the gift of the Spirit of Pentecost seems to be, seems to be something that they don't yet know.
2: Paul lays hands on them. That's a pretty deliberate act on Paul's part. And he doesn't seem to have done this regularly, or at least we're not told he's done it. I think the last time we read about it was in back in Acts 8 when he was in Samaria. Again, it seems like this is uh, something significant that these um, Ephesian, these Asian disciples come into the new world, come into this kingdom, are baptized into the name of... Uh, the king, the Lord, the ruler, Jesus. Um, so again, transitional period again, you know, uh, <clears throat> I don't think we can use this as any kind of paradigm for things that happen today. I doubt very much whether that works. Um, but for these folks, they needed a sign um, and they needed to know that they were now in the kingdom that Jesus has begun and this was the way it was symbolized. I mean, at least that I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the link back to Samaria is
1: again another tie back to the early to the early chapters. And I think that uh, so Acts nineteen seems to be replaying replaying the early chapters of Acts, uh, the ministry in Jerusalem. In another another layer, it's replaying the ministry in Samaria where. You have uh, baptism and then laying on of hands, and then the Spirit is given. And then you also have the sons of Sceva who are similar to uh, Simon Magus, who is wanting to mm-hmm. learn how to use the power of his hands so he can confer the Spirit. Uh, so you have a, a, an encounter with a, some kind of powerful figure, some kind of magician figure, as you do here in Acts. So it, Again, you're kind of replaying the early, the early events of Acts, tying them into the conclusion of Paul's ministry.
3: Thinking about this transitional period is difficult because we have a number of cases where people don't seem to be, for instance, rebaptized. Um, having received the baptism of John, that seemed to be enough. For instance, the disciples at Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't seem as if they are rebaptized. Rather, they baptize others. Um, whereas here, there is a, a rebaptism. In the case of Apollos, there isn't. Um, and so, Thinking about how that transition is taking place can be quite challenging. You have these cluster of things that come together um, with the confession of Christ, with the laying on of hands, and with the um, baptism, and then the coming of the Spirit upon people. And this happens in different orders in different places. For instance, the household of Cornelius, the Spirit comes upon them and they prophesy, or they speak in tongues, and then they are baptised whereas in um, the the Samaritan mission they're baptized first and then the disciples come and lay hands upon them and then they speak in tongues. So it seems as if it's almost the way I I see this, it's almost as if God is upgrading the operating system of his um, people and people have to upgrade to this um, new order. And the actual process of entering into that can be different for different people. Some people have been connected all the way through from the very ministry of John the Baptist. They've been baptized by him, followed Christ from that, and they don't actually need to be re whereas others like these who've missed the key transition of Pentecost do. Um, how exactly we understand the difference, um, it's not entirely easy to pass out, why some people are re and others are not.
2: In Acts 10, when the Spirit fell on Cornelius and those who heard Peter's preaching, it says in verse 46 that uh, they were speaking in tongues and extolling God. There's no mention there of prophecy. But here it says they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there's always this question about what, what were they doing? Were they actually making prophetic predictions about the future? Of course, that's going to happen here shortly in Acts. But this company—were they singing? Were they praising God? Were they extolling God through song? There's suggestions of that in the Hebrew scriptures uh, about uh, people coming together. I think Saul was mm-hmm. considered to be among the prophets because he's with a band of prophets and they're singing. They're not just all together making predictions. So I've always taken this to be something of a, a musical event, as well mm-hmm. as, you know, speaking in other languages.
3: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Another Old Testament um, sort of precedent would be in Numbers 11, where the Spirit of Moses comes upon the 70 elders and they all prophesy at that point, but it suggests that they don't do so again. It's more a manifestation of the way in which they've been appointed to office and anointed by the Spirit in much the same way as Saul. The Spirit comes upon him in chapter 10 of First Samuel.
2: Uh, I just checked. Uh, yeah, First Chronicles 25, David brings together the sons of Asaph and Heman and uh, Jeduthun for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals, and then there follows a list of the men who performed this service." So there's probably a precedent in in Scripture about prophecy being something uh, organized in terms of musical instruments and voices.
1: Right. Yeah, and of course you have the link in Ephesians 5 between the gift of the Spirit and song. Don't be don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, and Paul immediately goes on to talk about singing and making melody. So that that would that would also make uh, it would make sense from that angle too.
3: In Second Kings three, um, Elisha requests a musician to assist him in prophesying as well, which implies some sort of connection between music and prophecy.
1: Right. So there are 12, 12 men here that are baptized and receive the Spirit. Uh, which um, seems again to take us back to the early days of the uh, apostolic mission, where you start out with the the eleven in Acts one who choose a twelfth and then you have the twelve who are the uh, leaders of the of the Jerusalem church, and then you have a a, a repetition of that again here in uh, in Ephesus. Well, as usual, Paul uh, in, Paul goes into the synagogue. Alister made this point that uh, uh, there does seem to be a, an at least a different accent here, where he doesn't just leave the synagogue and shake off his robe against the synagogue, but he takes disciples along with him and establishes a an alternative synagogue community, alternative church community. Verse nine tells us that, and uh, that's when we begin to hear about the the miracles and signs that Paul's performing. That's not typically i think how we think of paul's ministry but uh, his ministry is punctuated by different sorts of signs he, he casts the the spirit out of the, the girl in philippi that provokes a uh, an opposition and leads to his imprisonment and here he's casting out demons and also healing diseases and uh, as the other like the other apostles paul is ministering both in word and with signs and wonders uh, that's replicating the ministry of jesus obviously but it's i think it's also an uh, we have made this point before. I believe that it goes back to the Moses descriptions of what happens in e- in Egypt. He performs signs and wonders before Pharaoh, and those are plagues and judgments that are going to uh, that are bringing warning to Pharaoh about impending an impending final doom against Egypt. And all the apostles performing signs and wonders throughout uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uh, Asia are uh, uh, that's both. Uh, a sign of God's presence and a sign of the coming of the kingdom, but it's also a there are signs and wonders that are warnings to those who resist that there's a there's a judgment coming.
4: Yeah, it feels like something quite fundamental is taking place here, as if Ephesus is being established as this important center. Like you say, Peter, there are the twelve men who are selected and anointed for ministry. Paul in verse 8 starts talking, um, he persuades them about the kingdom of God, which um, Paul has mentioned at least once before, like in Antioch in chapter um, 14, you know, through tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. But isn't, isn't, isn't the common uh, term. Paul stays there for a, a long time. As Anastasia said, there's this very public sort of defeat or exposure of the religious uh, authorities, these sort of sons of Skeva. It's almost sort of... I don't know like a Jericho moment in in the conquest of um canaan i I get the sense that this is a very sort of strategic um victory which is won here, um, although obviously in this case the silver is not um taken for ill purposes but is um uh, is burnt up all, all the valuable things it's sort of properly burnt and dedicated to the Lord.
1: so you have a kind of harem moment at, at the uh, after Paul's preached there burning their magic books uh, in verse. 19. They, yeah. You're making the connection with the, the conquest and the war of utter destruction against the Canaanite cities.
4: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's even a parallel with the uh, seven sons of a high priest and, and the seven kings of, um, uh, of, of Canaan who are hung uh, initially, in that there is this sort of defeat of the uh, previous sort of guardians of, of that area. Hmm. It's interesting that they've already taken to invoking the name of Christ,
3: um, it would seem. Given the opposition and hostility to the movement of the early Christians, that it would take a bit of it'd be a bit shamefaced to use the name of Jesus in their exorcisms, but they do so because it seems to them to have clear power. And then there's a testimony from the demons, as we see in the Gospels, to the the authority of Christ, and not just the authority of Christ, but the authority of
2: his appointed messengers. Peter, you mentioned this um, reproducing the ministry of Jesus with evil spirits and exorcisms. Is there something also here to the fact that these handkerchiefs and aprons, whatever they were, uh, being in contact with Paul's skin, carried away to the the sick and brought healing, brought health and life? Of course, we have these pictures of Jesus being touched and touching his garment and The healing, the health, the wholeness, the holiness being spread from him to, there's a couple of women at least that uh, have this happen to them in the Gospels. But here it's Paul. And so when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wow, God is doing such amazing things through Paul that even when he's not present, his influence, his agency is still powerful through these you know things that have come in contact with his skin of all of all things. So he's he's spreading holiness. He's spreading I don't know. He's just spreading health all through the societies. There's a social kind of implication here.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean that's borne out in the uh, financial impact of what the um, what we read later on and and in the previous chapters. Just the sort of social implications of of the gospel but I mean I, I get the sense that theologically what's going on is, is that kind of this uh, kingdom is, is being portrayed as uh, something that is sort of more powerful than the law Insofar as the law is uh, described uh, as, as far as contagion goes so you get the um, passage at the end of Haggai when it talks about you know if there's holy meat and it's carried in uh, a garment does that garment sort of carry the the holiness and the priests say sort of, no, it doesn't, you know, and, and then they say, well, if there's a dead body who touches the priest, you know, does the priest contract that uncleanness? And, and they say, yes. So there's this sort of uh, asymmetry in the law's ability to uh, communicate cleanness and, and, and uncleanness. And um, that seems to be reversed here in that Paul is this source of cleanness and it can sort of go out from him, even via uh, a garment or, or, or something like that. It, it seems to be sort of portraying the gospel as, as, as this thing which goes beyond the law in, in its abilities. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether we're supposed to see here also some echoes of
3: the events in chapter four and five with the great fear po- falling upon the people and mm-hmm. with the numbering, um, there's 50,000 pieces of silver, there were 5,000 disciples earlier on. I wonder whether there is some connection between those details, that this is a new Jerusalem situation that can become a new center for the early church.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and part of part of that uh, reversal that you're talking about, James, uh, is uh, Jesus' conquest over demons and magicians. He's proving himself to be the stronger man who binds the strong man and plunders his house. And here... He seems to be plundering the house to the extent that he, the, the demons actually kind of act on his behalf. They 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 acknowledge Jesus, verse fifteen, uh, and then they the the man with the evil spirit beats up the uh, the false exorcists. Jesus being magnified as the healer, but also he's he's in charge of the demons. I mean, the demons acknowledge him, and the demons uh, take vengeance against his enemies and and uh, people who invoke his name. Falsely, and uh, so there's a, a continuing triumph of Christ over Satan.
4: Mm. Yeah, the fact that they flee naked is seems to be a picture of the fact, fact that they uh, they're, they're exposed to be powerless. They're you know um, overpowered in this spirit has the mastery of them. It seems to be a, a revelation of their spiritual
2: uh, state. Mm-hmm. Again, here I think we see another humorous comic illustration of how impotent the Jews have become in the, in the cities of the empire in, in the, in the wider world. It's tragic, but it's also something of a joke, how pitiful, how ineffective they are. Um, Sceva apparently is a Hellenized version of um, Latin scava, meaning left-handed or sinister, untrustworthy. So that, these Jewish exorcists are somewhat symbolic of what's going on in the ancient world, especially in Ephesus, of course, and they've been reduced to these magic kind of uh, events or the, the ceremonious exorcism, but they have really no power, no, no, uh, no ability to bring any life or order or wisdom into the cities that they're, they're part of. And of course, here, here we have again uh, Paul and the church uh, replacing them, uh, and uh, the, the power now, the glory, the beauty, the the health is all located in the ministry of Paul and the church.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm. That would be neat, Jeff, if, if that's right in terms of Sceva, because then Paul the Benjamite, you know, the son of the right hand, would defeat these sons of the left hand, so that there'd be a nice, uh, <laughs> nice irony to it. <laughs> Yeah,
1: that would be cool.
2: It's Because it's cool, we believe it's true.
4: <laughs> <Right>.
2: <laughs> I looked at my Lewis and Shorts Latin dictionary, and that's that's what it said. Uh, so,
3: <laughs> there you go. In verses 9 and 23, the movement of the early church is described as the way. Um, elsewhere, we discover that the Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. But... They seem to call themselves um, the way. Do any of you have any thoughts on why that would be the chosen term? Well,
1: it seems like you have Old Testament precedent for kind of the the two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Moses talks about that in Deuteronomy. You have that kind of model in the wisdom literature uh, where you choose wisdom rather than folly, which is wisdom is the way of life. But I I think that... uh, my thought has been that it probably goes back to things that Jesus Himself said, mm. not recorded in Luke, but recorded in John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I don't think it's—I don't think simply referring to a way of life, except insofar as following a particular way of life is following the way, which is the way to the Father, and that way to the Father is Jesus Himself. So um, my suspicion is it would come from that—that that teaching of Jesus. It's interesting that it foregrounds the Christian message as a path
3: of discipleship rather than primarily just a body of teachings and things to be believed.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, right, which I think is, uh, I mean, that fits with the the whole thrust of Acts and including the ministry of Paul. Um, We're going to look at chapter 20 in the next episode, but uh, there Paul is describing his own work and ministry among the Ephesians and he describes it as a, it's a discipleship, it's a model, a way of discipleship, but it's also a model for the Ephesians, as the elders who are going to take leadership of the church after him. So his, his whole ministry, and he does this in the, in the epistles too, when he talks about as Second Corinthians, perhaps most clearly, he talks about his own suffering and weakness uh, as uh, a part of, as part of his apostolic qualification. Uh, and the reason why it's an apostolic qualification is because he's conformed to to Christ. his suffering is a doesn't just talk about suffering, he actually experiences suffering and his his life story is a manifestation of the gospel of suffering and the suffering and glory of Christ.
4: When we went through the early chapters of Acts, I was very struck by its many allusions to isaiah thirty five in that you've got kind of the waters poured out from on high and then you have the lame leaping the tongue of the, of the mute singing um, for joy and all sorts of other things going on. And there it goes on to say that a, a highway should be made there and it, it should be called the way of holiness. And that was at least what it, it brought to my mind that it, it is this uh, establishment of, of the way.
1: Which in Isaiah is going to be the the way of return, the way of return from exile, the way to the promised land would have those kind of connotations. I think that's, that's really helpful. And I, I mean, I think that you can, you could weave that together with Jesus' own self description as the way, because he, he's he's the way to the uh, to the land of promise, and along the way, the the lame are being healed, the sick are being healed, uh, demons are being cast out.
4: Yeah there in isaiah 35 is, is one of my favorite verses it's a, when it talks about the establishment of the way um, it says you know even if those who walk in it are fools they still will not go astray which I always take great, um, great comfort <laughs> in. <laughs> well
1: at the beginning of verse twenty one we have a um, well, we have a, a little we have a little shift of verses twenty one and twenty two it seems like paul 's ministry is completed in Ephesus and he's laying out a little um, preview of where he's going to go. He, needs, he intends to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. Uh, this, again, I think is an, a sign of Paul's conformity to Christ. He's going to be making a journey to Jerusalem. We'll find out in the next chapter and the following chapters that he's going to be arrested and imprisoned there. So sufferings lie ahead. And it resembles the determination that Jesus has after the transfiguration it's in uh, Luke 9, right in the middle of Luke's gospel, where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And then for the next 10 chapters, it's all about a journey to Jerusalem. And Paul is following that same pathway, purposed in the Spirit. And I think Spirit is the Holy Spirit there. So the Spirit is leading him to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. The chapter ends with a lengthy description of the riot that takes place in Ephesus. You know, another city, another riot, that's Paul's Ministry in the last several chapters. This one is sparked by uh, silversmiths. It's uh, resembles the riot in Philippi back in chapter sixteen, uh, where the opposition to Paul was was sparked by Paul's ministry that deprived the owners of this slave girl of their of their livelihood. And the same thing is happening happening to Demetrius and the other silversmiths. But then they bring charges against Paul that are not just self interested charges. They they claim that Paul is overturning the worship of Artemis and undermining the re- religious life of Ephesus. Paul's kind of a bit player in this in this story. Uh, he doesn't get a speaking part. He tries to get into the assembly in order to talk to the uh, people, the mob that's rioting. But uh, his friends persuade him not to go in. But um, it's it's his teaching and his ministry there over these many years that have created this uh, opposition
3: both here in relation to pagans and in the Gospel of Luke, in relationship to the leaders of the Jews, Luke seems to be very alert to the financial and business aspect of um, Judaism and paganism. He recognizes the ways in which certain people are propping up the whole system in order to line their own pockets and the mercenary character of many of the dealings, and how this actually leads to the oppression of widows, devouring of their houses. And in this case, that it's precisely someone who's worried about losing his business that's provoking this riot that is ostensibly about the religious concerns. Um, But really, behind all of that, there's a concern for a mammon, um, that that can be the primary God to which people are committed.
1: Which is consistent with a a constant theme of Luke. This is one of the distinguishing marks of Luke, the tension to uh, outcasts and the poor and um, the programmatic sermon that Jesus preaches in Luke 4, where he quotes from Isaiah 61 and uh, proclaims good news to the poor. So there's this constant warning about the entanglements of mammon and the dangers of wealth. Uh, and uh, we see that come up in a variety of ways in 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 Acts, where people are opposed to the gospel because they're because they're committed to they're committed to to producing and selling their Artemis kitsch. That's what that's what they do here in Ephesus.
2: The bigger picture is Demetrius and others know that if you change the city's religion, you change the way people live with one another, the way they. Buy and sell what they buy and sell, and more. So, and it's not just it's not just Demetrius. He notices in verse twenty-seven that the danger is not just to him, but it's to the whole region. Um, everybody is involved in this. The whole region is part of this uh, nexus of the cult of Artemis and the financial interest. Apparently, uh, Ephesus was also connected with the temple in Artemis was a big banking institution as well. So um, Christianity comes and can't be, it's not just an inner, you know, modern, modernistic way of, you know, personal peace and prosperity. You know, you get to go to heaven when you die. It disrupts everything. It divides and destroys, even as it will heal. Of course, you have to break things, first, in order for them to be put back together right, and and not just the man's inner life, but his whole way of life, including economics, and in here, politics as well.
3: I wonder whether we could hear a faint um, echo of the story of Exodus with competing construction projects, that um, in the book of Exodus you have the construction of the tabernacle, but also the construction of the golden calf, And now there's an emphasis, not upon gold, but upon silver, silver that's gathered gathered together in those who um, give up their magical practices, um, or symbolically gathered, and then silver in the case of Demetrius, the silversmith. And then on the other hand, you have Paul, who's the tent maker, um, as we find out in the previous chapter.
1: Mm. One of the things that's going on here is an anticipation of the riot that Paul's going to provoke in Jerusalem. Uh, that'll occur in chapter 21, and it's, it's interesting to read those two passages in concert because the behavior of these Ephesian idolaters is very similar to the behavior of the Jews in Jerusalem when they think that their temple has been defiled, uh, and it, it displays the, some of the same kind of motivations. You've got this commitment to the physical temple, uh, this object made by hands. The same way that the uh, Ephesians have their commitment to well they, they believe Artemis fell from heaven, but they have this commitment to the great temple of Artemis and uh, these um, silver shrines that Artem- uh, that Demetrius and his and his and his colleagues make, but well, the same kind of violence that you find in Ephesus is going to occur in Jerusalem in a, in a couple of chapters hmm. this is I think this is the only time in Acts where we have the word ecclesia used in its um, standard uh Greek political sense in verse thirty two some were shouting one thing, some another, for the ecclesia was in confusion. the majority did not know for what cause they had come together at the end of the chapter uh the city official dismisses the ecclesia the, this citizen assembly uh, which is supposed to deliberate and make decisions about about the city and uh instead it's just a uh it's you know they're clamoring uh, they're shouting they're they're chanting Artemis, great is Artemis the, of the Ephesians, for a couple of hours. Mm. Uh, so in, provoked, by the, provo- provoked by Paul and his preaching of the gospel, you have what is um, uh, set up as the, the, the model of rational political deliberation just thrown into this kind of frenzy.
3: Also seems to provoke some of the internal disunity of the crowd. You see the confusion. Many of them don't know why they're there in the first place. Um, They're shouting different things originally, and then the Jew is put forward, Alexander, and when they discover that he's a Jew, they all cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It seems, as elsewhere, that the gospel doesn't just bring enemies together. It also reveals some of the contradictions and the conflicts and throws the project of uniting a society, the status quo and the the sort of stable ecology of this society, it's thrown into confusion. They can't work together anymore. They become, in the presence of the gospel, a mob and a clamoring and confused one. What do
1: you make of Alexander? What uh, The Jews put him forward. He's tending to make a defense uh, before the assembly. What do you think he's going to, to say what is he defending is he going to is he going to be defending paul is he trying to trying to make sure there 's plenty of separation between the between Paul and the rest of the jews uh, what 's he up to it reminds me in some
3: ways of the way that Paul sets um, different of the Jew, the jews of against each other concerning the resurrection that here the Jews are forced actually to put forward some defense of the opposition to idolatry because they actually agree with Paul on that point. But maybe they've been soft-peddling that because they have to keep their place within the city. Um, And so there is maybe an element of trolling to Paul's message sometimes. He causes confusion um, by the fact that he pits people against each other who have been
2: maintaining a fragile but false peace Mm -hmm. it's telling that paul is on the sidelines i think you mentioned that earlier peter that he's really not a major player in all this he's kind of off to the side except for the back in verse 11 where we find out he was doing you know really cool miracles (laughs) but uh, not only is he off to the side but paul wants to do something that all of his companions tell him not to do. They keep him from doing it, which is instructive, you know, because Luke here is Paul's disciple and Paul's uh, secretary and whatever else Luke is to Paul. And yet he records something very honestly here that Paul didn't get to do what he wanted to do. Uh, everybody kept him out of the assembly for some reason um, where they have frightened Paul might get, mobbed or or did they you know why didn't they want paul i guess they were afraid for his life yeah that's that was
1: my uh that was my assumption it's interesting that he's uh the disciples won't let him in verse 30 said and then the asiarchs mm-hmm. uh, who are political officials who are friends of his that is paul has friends in the in the political elite and they're also trying to keep him away um, and maybe you know they could have mixed motives, trying to protect Paul, but also that would just be a further provocation. And if the if the mob is already kind of out of control, putting Paul in the middle of it would uh, just stir things, and you know the, the frenzy would get even more intense.
4: We get the same thing though in chapter twenty-one, don't we? Where initially Agabus and then the people urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So th- this is a Dynamic that's going to pop up a bit later as well.
1: Yeah. So is it uh, Paul needs to get to Jerusalem. Paul Paul can't be arrested in Ephesus because he needs to do it in Jerusalem. Is that uh, part of the theme? Hmm. What do you make of the town clerk's uh, speech at the end of the? Uh, takes up several verses at the end of the chapter, and uh, he kind of reassures everybody we've got we've got the mechanisms to handle this. There isn't. There's nothing here that needs to be before the court. Uh, and if there is anything that needs to be before the court, it can be settled in a calm way when we convene the ecclesia in its regular meetings. It seems to me that uh, Demetrius has a better sense of the threat that Paul poses than the town clerk does. But uh, is there is there another way to read that? Is that is that the same sense you have? The, the town clerk is kind of naive about the effects of Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus.
3: It's perhaps similar to the speech of Gamaliel, earlier on in chapter six, it mollifies the assembly, but they're also, um, it does reflect partly upon the fact that Paul and the others are not directly attacking um, Diana in the way that, or Artemis in the way that some would expect. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not blaspheming her in the ways that um, some might do, but rather they're fundamentally attacking undermining everything that she represents but they're not just going out to provoke Um, and that seems to be a characteristic of the early church more generally they don't go out to um, destroy the temples Um, they undermine idolatry at a far more fundamental level than that it's not just an attack upon the idolaters trying to offend them in whatever way they can
2: This is a speech also that's a lot like other speeches or other actions that the Romans have taken. I think it was back in Corinth with Gallio also. Something similar, just trying to calm people down. Uh, Don't want a riot. Don't want, certainly don't want Rome to find out about all this because Rome didn't take kindly to riots like this. Um, This all seems to be proper kind of typical Ciceronian rhetoric here about uh, about what to do in light of a crisis situation. The other thing I'm wondering is, uh, is this, so he mentions here, where is it? Oh, yeah, um, that uh, we know that the city of Ephesus is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, is I wonder if that's like a veiled uh, repudiation of, of Paul's and the Christians teaching that, you know, these are gods made with hands and they're not gods. So, Hey, remember Artemis fell from the sky. She wasn't made by us. She wasn't fashioned by our hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
1: he's, he's in fact, defending the traditional Artemis cult. Yeah. 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 And these are undeniable facts, as you said in verse 36. (laughs) Everybody knows that Artemis fell from the sky.
4: Um, I'm struck by Anastasia's observation that um, Paul's uh, focus here seems to be on a positive presentation of the gospel, um, rather than kind of targeting very specific issues, specific Gods or, or, or sins or, or whatever. And um, that just seems to be a very instructive example today for the presentation of the gospel. That while there are probably all sorts in the present day, all sorts of kind of specific issues, it could be easy to take aim at and therefore draw a lot of attention to yourself, um, get a lot of enemies on one side or friends on the other. Um, rather than doing that, Paul's method here seems to be to. Um, advocate broad truths and worldviews and and philosophies which do undermine um, all that but just in a much more um, fundamental and programmatic way than taking aim at isolated issues and then trying to topple them which ultimately is never going to work anyway and so I just think strategically that it feels like there's a lot to be learned from this.